Good to have you guys here today. You know, if you've uh, been with us the last uh, several weeks, we've been in a series here called Hashtag My Verse. And what we did was we asked you to write down your favorite, favorite verse on a post-it and stick it on the wall out in the, in the lobby. And I, we had an overwhelming response. We had hundreds of you post a verse. And I hope you've had an opportunity to go by there and take a look at it. It's just, uh, it's very inspiring to read the different verses that are up there. You know, the first two messages that we did in this series, we, we took the top two verses that were posted up there, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and Jeremiah 29, 11. We did verses on that. And, and this weekend, I had the opportunity finally to tell you what my verse is. And so that's what this message is all about today. I want to tell you about the verse that I chose. And uh, the verse that I chose was not my favorite verse. I just want you to know that. It wasn't my second favorite verse or my third favorite verse either. In fact, I don't know that, I don't think that any of you posted this verse on the wall as well, but it was a verse that was brought to my attention about a month ago, and I've been, it's been on my, uh, weighing heavy on my heart ever since, and so that's what I want to tell you about today, and so I want to begin by, uh, with a word of prayer, first of all, and the verse has really pierced my heart, and and I'm praying today that it will pierce your heart as well, okay? So let's begin with a word of prayer, and then I'll tell you all about my verse. Now let's pray together. Well, Father, thank you so much. It is uh, so good to be here this morning, and I, I thank you on this Memorial Day weekend, God, for the opportunity to come and gather and, and worship. And, you know, first of all, Father, um, I pray that you would help us all just to be so mindful and so grateful, God, for all those who have given their lives and sacrificed for our freedom and our country. And um, God, help us to, to remember that, to pause and reflect on that this weekend. And Father, thank you too for all those who serve um, our country even today in, in the military. We ask God for your blessings and protection to be with them and with their families. And Father, today, you know, as I have an opportunity to come and share the verse that you've put on my heart, um, Father, you, have, you, you really have pierced my heart um, with this particular uh, scripture, and, and I pray, God, that you would do the same today. I pray that you would pierce the hearts of every single person in this room. I pray that you would stir in our hearts. Uh, in many ways, the things that I have to say with regards to this verse are not going to be easy to hear. Uh, it, it's hard um, because things are not great, and so, God, I, I pray you'd open up our hearts. I pray that you would remove any distractions that might enter uh, into our minds today, and I pray that we would hear clearly. I pray that it would be you that we hear from. So thank you, Father. Um, speak to us now. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you brought your Bible, turn to Psalm 137. All right, Psalm 137. If you have a Bible, if you were to open up right into the middle, you'll come right to the book of Psalms. And, and I'll tell you about that in just a moment. And if you, didn't, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, hopefully you received a Baywatch. That's our program when you walked in here today. And the verses, uh, most of the verses are listed there in a sheet inside your Baywatch. All the verses will be put up here on the screen. You can also go to our South Bay Community Church app. And the verses and the program will be listed there for you as well. Now, before I show you my verse, it's, it's here in this chapter, Psalm 137. Let me give you the backstory because it's critical that you understand the backstory uh, before, so that you understand what this verse is all about, all right? Approximately 1,000 years before Christ, that would have been 3,000 years ago, 
A thousand years before Christ, the nation of Israel was engulfed in a civil war. And the nation split into two parts, as you can see from this map. It split into the north and it split into the south, much like what happened during our own civil war, the north and the south. The northern kingdom of Israel retained the name Israel, and the southern kingdom uh, adopted the name Judah. And so as you can see here, there are two nations. The capital of Israel, Jerusalem, was located in the south. It was part of Judah. And you can see Jerusalem there, the top half of uh, that gold area. You see the star there. That's Jerusalem. Fast forward 500 years from the time that the nation split 3,000 years ago to the year 586 B.C., Now, 586 B.C. should be a year that's familiar to you because we speak about it pretty regularly here. 586 B.C. was the year that the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar II, invaded the kingdom of Judah and attacked Jerusalem. Babylon descended into into Judah and Jerusalem from the northeast, as this arrow shows. That's kind of where they were at, kind of further uh, to the east there. And this is where they came from. And the Babylonian Empire, which was the greatest world power at the time, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the city, and in the process obliterated the temple of God, which was built there by King Solomon. The event is described in Scripture in a number of different places, but let me just show you one place that it tells us about this particular event. Second Kings chapter 25, this verse, these verses are not listed there for you in your program. They're kind of incidental, but I put them up on the screen, and here's what it says. In the fifth month on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So right off the bat, we, get an idea. we know exactly when this happened. We, exact, we know exactly when the invasion happened, right? Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, A servant of the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans was a reference to the Babylonians, all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile, right? So what we have here is a picture of a complete and total rout. Nebuchadnezzar's army descended upon Judah and Jerusalem, destroyed the city, left nothing, and the temple of God was left and reduced to rubble. That's what happened. And the Jews who weren't killed, the Jews that were left, were still alive, were forcibly removed from their homes, taken to Babylon, where they were forced to live in exile for decades, I mean, this was a disaster of epic proportions for the Jews. They were taken to Babylon. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Babylon, because this became their home. Babylon was a city with a population of 200,000 or so people. It was the crown jewel of the ancient world. It was a fabulous city. It was a great city. It was a beautiful city, but it had a dark underbelly to it, because the city was steeped in idolatry. The Babylonians worshipped pagan gods like these two here. The Tiamat was a goddess, the primordial goddess of the Salton Sea. She's on the left, and Marduk was on the right. These were just two of the gods that they worshipped in Babylon. And they would build these temples in honor of these gods, and people would come to worship these gods and other gods like it 
in, the temple, in their temples. And of course, it didn't stop with just the two, these two here. You might recall that according to the prophet Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar erected a 90-foot-tall image made out of gold. In all likelihood, the image was of himself, and it might have looked like this. And Nebuchadnezzar commanded that everyone worship the image. And so the country, the whole country, was steeped in idolatry. In addition to the idolatry and paganism, sexual immorality was rampant throughout the, throughout the city, including temple prostitution. They would go to the, the temples of these gods, and they would engage in prostitution there at the temple. So Babylonian culture was rotten to the core. It was morally corrupt. This was the new reality for the Jews. This was the new place. This was their new home. This was the place that they were now to live. This was the backdrop also of the writing of Psalm 137. So let me read just the first verse to you. Psalm 137, verse 1. And it says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Now, whoever wrote Psalm 137, and we don't know for sure who wrote it. Some say it was the prophet Jeremiah who wrote Psalm 137. Some say it was David. We don't really know because it doesn't say. Many of the Psalms will tell us right from the get-go who wrote it, and we just don't know. This one does not have a signature to it. But all we know is that the writer of Psalm 137 sat by the waters of Babylon. Sat by the waters of Babylon, which meant that he sat by the river that ran right through it, right next to it. And that was the river Euphrates. This wasn't the Jordan River. This was the river Euphrates, which ran alongside uh, Babylon. In case, in fact, if you were to go in search of ancient Babylon, you would find the ancient ruins of Babylon in the nation of Iraq. And you would know that it runs right next to the river Euphrates. And so the psalmist wrote in very first verse that he sat by the river Euphrates and he wept as he remembered Zion. Zion was a reference to Jerusalem. He wept because their city was destroyed. The temple was gone. Everything was wiped out. And he wept because of that. Not only that, because he wept because they were refugees. They were a people without a home. And then he lamented in verse 4. Take a look at verse 4. This was my verse. He, he lamented in verse 4, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Notice the verse isn't a command. The verse is not a sentence. The verse is a question. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? This question could have been asked a number of different ways, like, How are we to praise the Lord now? What are we to do now? Who in this land will praise the Lord at all? And it was an important question because it drew attention to the issue that the Jews were now facing in Babylon, and that is, what would become of their faith? How would the people of God live out their faith in a pagan and morally corrupt culture? How would they do that? And the reason why this verse, when I came across it about a month ago, has weighed so heavily upon my heart is because in, in recent days, it's just, it just seems to me, not just in recent days, but just recently, it seems to me that this place that we call home, the United States of America, California, Southern California, has begun to feel more and more like a foreign land. It's become, begun to feel more and more like Babylon. 
And let me point out just a few reasons why it's been feeling that way to me and, and probably to you as well. Recently, the Barna Research Group, which is considered the premier uh, faith-based research and polling uh, firm in our country, came to the conclusion that fewer and fewer people in our country have a biblical or Christian worldview. That was their conclusion. And by the way, a worldview is just kind of how you see the world. It's, it's your emotional and intellectual f- f- filter which h- helps you to view the world. A worldview is determined by your values. It's determined by your value systems, your belief system, by your ideas, by your faith. All right? And everybody has a worldview. We all have a worldview. And depending on who you ask, there may be anywhere from five to ten or even more different worldviews. And I want to just tell you a few of them. First one is naturalism. Naturalism is the worldview that there is no God, there's no spiritual dimension to the world. And the world functions just on the basis of of natural laws. So naturalism is one worldview. And I'm going to put all these up here for you. There are going to be seven of them. And after they're all up here, then maybe if you want to, because I didn't make any room in your notes to write them down, but if you want to take a picture of it with your, your cell phone, you can do that when they're all up here. Second worldview would be postmodernism, which is the, the view that there is no objective truth. There is no absolute truth. Truth is relative. Truth is whatever true is true to you. A third worldview would be secular humanism, whose core premise is that man is at the center of the universe. It's all about man. Instead of faith, secular humanism advocates the use of human reason or common sense or science to decipher, to make sense of the world. Fourth human uh, worldview would be pantheism, which is the view that everything is God. Everyone is God. The rock is God. The tree is God. The chair you're sitting on is God. The lights are God. Water is God. Your dog is God. The underpinnings, if you think about the underpinnings of Shintoism, the underpinnings of Hinduism and the New Age movement is pantheism, that everyone and everything is God. A fifth worldview would be pluralism, Pluralism espouses the idea that no one religion is right, but there's truth in all religions. Therefore, let's all get along. We'll just take a little bit out of, out of all of them. Pluralism is the expression of coexistence or diversity or inclusion. You've probably heard the term pluralistic society. We are a pluralistic society. Pluralistic society would be a, a society in which people believe all kinds of different things, but they all strive to coexist. Now, on its face, that looks pretty good. But looks can be deceiving. You know, in the religious world, pluralism is ecumenism. I don't know if you've ever heard that term, ecumenism, such as it's used, for example, to describe an ecumenical service. Ecumenism is is widely promoted by by an organization called the World Council of Churches. And according to the website gotquestions.org, they define ecumenism as a, quote, a movement that promotes worldwide unity among all religions through greater cooperation, unquote. In other words, so as not to offend anyone, we're going to have an ecumenical service, and an ecumenical service might might include singing Christian hymns, having a Buddhist chant, and having a sermon delivered by an Islamic imam. That's ecumenism because we don't want to offend anybody. Right, that, and that's, that's pluralism. A sixth worldview would be Islamism or Islam, which teaches that God, there's one God, Allah, and, his, and, his, uh, and the prophet Muhammad is his messenger. Today, approximately one-fifth of the world's population is Muslim. And the way that Islam is applied to daily life is through Sharia law. 
which is Islam's legal system. Today, there are 35 countries around the world that live under Sharia law. A few weeks ago, Saudi Arabia executed 37 men under Sharia law. You might have heard about it. It was in the news. Five of them were put to, to death for having committed some type of homosexual act. So they did that under Sharia law. You're dead. And they killed them. That brings us to one final worldview that I want to tell you about, and that's biblical or, or Christian worldview. Biblical worldview or Christian worldview. Now, uh, someone with a Christian or biblical worldview would believe the following. And I put this definition together from a variety of different sources, including the Billy Graham Association and, and Barna. But here's kind of a Christian worldview, and I, and I wrote these out for you on the back of your notes there. You have them for you and, uh, so that you can refer to it often and, and kind of determine whether you have this kind of a worldview or not. But a biblical worldview goes like this. Number one, God exists. You believe that God exists. You believe that there's a God. Second, God created the universe. He created the heavens and the earth. Third, you believe that God created man in his image. Therefore, people are important to God. People matter to God. Fourth, man is a sinner. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Five, God gave his son Jesus to redeem us from our sins because God loves us. Six, the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God. Seven, there is a real devil. The devil is real. Satan is, is real, and he opposes God, and he opposes his people. And finally, number eight, one day Jesus Christ will return triumphantly back to earth, and he will judge sin, judge the world, and establish his eternal kingdom. All right, so th those eight points, and you can add a few more in here and there, right? But those eight points basically would be the definition, constitutes the definition of a biblical worldview, and it comes from the Scriptures. It comes from the Bible. And so you can add that one to your list, all right? It comes from the Bible. So now if you want to take a picture of that, that's a complete list. I mean, again, there are other worldviews. You can add others to the list, but that's basically the, the number, you know, seven of them, seven big ones, right? Christ followers would believe the bottom one, right, that we have a biblical world where we see the world through the lens of Scripture. We see the lens through, the world, through Scripture. So here's a question for you. What is your worldview? What's your worldview? Do you, how do you see the world? Now, going back to Barna, last year, the Barna Research Group questioned more than 6,000 adults nationwide for their survey on their worldview. They polled 6,000 adults here in America 30% of whom were, that would be 1,800 of them, identified themselves as born-again Christians. Here's what Barna found last year. First, the survey revealed that only 7% of American adults had a biblical worldview. Only 7%. That's roughly 23 million people out of 327 million people in our country. Population is 327 million Barna found that only 7% of them, only 23 million Americans, had a biblical worldview. Of the 30% who claimed to be born-again Christians, only of the 30% who claimed to be born-again Christians, only 23% said they had a biblical worldview. Only 23% of Christians said they had a biblical worldview, which means that 77% of all those who claim to be Christians don't have a biblical worldview. How's that possible? How can you be a Christ follower and not have a Christian worldview of things? 
When Barna broke down the results by generation, here's what he found. Of those who belonged to the elder generation, that would be all those folks born before 1946, they would be 74 years or older, he found that 9% of them had a biblical worldview. And again, when I'm done with this chart, you can take a picture of it. 9% of those 74 years and older had a biblical worldview. Of those belonging to the baby boom generation, that would be those folks born between 1946 and 1964. They would be 55 to 73 years old. All those folks, they also, he found, had a 9% of them had a Christian worldview. Of those belonging to the Gen X generation, that would be all those folks born between 1965 and 1983, be 36 years old or 54 years old, that would be me. He found that, <laughs> laugh, will you? <laughs> he found, I wish, right? He found that 8% of them had a biblical worldview. And of, those, and, and of those who are part of the millennial generation, those born between 1984 and 1998, those 21 to 35, only 4% of them had a Christian worldview. So as you can see from Barna's findings, with each passing generation, the number of people who have a biblical worldview gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And fewer and fewer people see the lens through Scripture, see the world through Scripture. There's one other generation I need to tell you about. And that's the Gen Z generation. Now, I don't know if that's their official name, uh, but that's what Barna called them, the Gen Z generation. Gen Zers were born between 1999 and, and 2015. 1999 and 2015, they range in age from four years old to 20. There are 69 to 70 million Gen Zers today. My daughter Natalie is one of them. Now, let me tell you what's going on with them. Gen Zers are today's pre-teenagers and teenagers, except a new name has been given to them. They have been dubbed Screenagers, Screenagers, because more than half of them, actually 57% of them, according to one survey I read, spend more than four hours a day looking at their screen. More than four hours a day, 57% of teenagers spend that much time looking at their screen, usually a cell phone, right? And that can be problematic for so many different reasons, but let me just give you one reason why that's problematic, and it's called porn, pornography. Consider these horrifying statistics. According to the British Journal of the School of Nursing, 22% of youth who go online to view porn, 22% of them are under the age of 10. According to a report that was published in the Huffington Post in 2016, the average age of first exposure to internet or online porn is 11 years old. According to FamilySafeMedia.com, more than nine out of every 10 boys and six out of every 10 girls will have seen internet porn before the age of 18. That's nearly every boy that comes to our youth group and most girls that come to our youth group. Another statistic, nearly 50% of teenagers say that texting sexual or naked photos or videos is part of everyday life as a teenager. 
In 2017, Barna teamed up with an organization called Impact 360 Institute to study Gen Xers. They published their findings in this book right here. I had to get it and read it. It's absolutely disturbing what it says. But here's what else they concluded about Gen Zers. They found that just like millennials, only 4% of Gen Zers have a biblical worldview. Four out of every 100 Gen Zers have a biblical worldview. Now, if you want to snap a picture of this, you can. Barna also found that 35% of Gen Zers describe themselves as atheists, agnostics, or unaffiliated with any religion. 35%, which led Barna to conclude that today's teenagers, the Gen Z generation, comprise the most non-Christian generation in our nation's history the most non-Christian generation in our nation's history. And if these trends continue, by the time they reach adulthood, my guess is, only, my guess is that only a fraction of them, a tiny fraction of them, will still be walking with Christ and have a biblical worldview. And I can't imagine what it will be like for them and for my daughter to live in a world in which there are hardly any Christians. In fact, not too long ago, I asked my daughter, my Gen Zer Natalie, if she had any hope. And she you know, I was startled by her answer. She said, I do and I don't. What do you mean you do and you don't? She says, well, Dad, I always have hope because I have God, but I don't have hope. I go, why don't you have hope? She says, because hardly any of my friends are Christians. Hardly anybody she went to school with, middle school in Torrance, North High, hardly any, all the kids she played basketball with, all the kids that she knows at El Camino College today, hardly any of them are Christ followers. And so she said, I don't have any hope. And it just broke my heart. And it isn't just that they aren't Christ followers, but it's what they're into. And it's how they live their lives that's so heartbreaking. On Thursday night, in fact, uh, you know, Thursday night, I was talking to a bunch of our college students. God bless our college students. I mean, Kylie and Allie texted us after college group on after the college small group on Thursday night, and they said, "We're coming over. They're all coming over." So Cheryl right away started whipping some food together, and all these about ten o'clock at night. They don't do things early, right? <laughs> ten o'clock at night, they, like thirty of them showed up at our house, and and I had a chance to just to sit and chat with a bunch of the guys. And I, I, God bless our college students. And as I was talking to them, I asked them what dorm life was like for those of them who who went away to to, to school. I asked them what dorm life was like. And without exception, oh, I should say there was one exception, but they told me that, that dorm life it was rampant with drug use and drinking. Rampant. The one exception was the one student who was going to Biola who said they didn't see that to that extent there. And it, and it just broke my heart. He says, it, they, they told me that it was so bad in, in their dorms that in two different college campuses to the point where paramedics were summoned on a regular basis because there were so many guys overdosing on drugs and falling ill to alcohol poisoning. On a regular basis, they got to call the paramedics. One of the guys told me that on his campus, there were around 8,000 students on his campus here in California, college here in California, not in some third world country, not in Japan. He said there might be 30 Christians. That's it. Might be 30 Christians on a, on a campus here in California. And we see the same thing happening even among our preteens. And by the way, last night, after the message, a parent came up to me and said, 
You remember my son? He came here to church. He grew up in youth group, went away to a Christian college, and fell victim to drugs. He said, the drugs are rampant on this Christian college campus. And I'm not going to name the school to you. You would be familiar with it, I think. If you want to know what college campus it is, you can come up to me afterwards and I'll tell you. Right? But things are getting bad. And the same things are happening among our pre-teenagers. One middle school teacher who attends our church told me a few weeks ago that he caught one of his students vaping in class. In class. And when the dad was called in to meet with the teacher and the principal about what his son was doing, the father uh, indignantly, when he was told about this, indignantly said to his son, is that my vape? You took my vape? He was more upset that his son took his vape than that his son was vaping in class. Well, where do you think he learned how to do it? Another teacher who attends our church, he's here today. He teaches at one of, the most, one of the more affluent high schools here in the South Bay. Told me that the new thing now is that students do drugs with their parents. That the kids do drugs with their parents. Yeah, drug use is a family affair. You know, we'll all just smoke pot together. And thus the parents are leading their children down this dark path and they're doing it by example. See, kids don't do what their parents tell them to do. They do what their parents do, right? They just follow their example. Call me old-fashioned, but I don't ever remember it being like this. And so this place that we call home is beginning to feel more and more like a foreign land. It's beginning to feel more and more like Babylon. Let me give you one more. Just a few weeks ago, the California State Board of Education adopted a sex education framework for our public schools for for students K, kindergarten through 12th grade. And among the other things, the framework that they approve spells out what to teach our kids about sex education and what books to use to teach them. And for example, they recommended a book titled My Princess Boy to teach kindergartners about transgenderism. And the book is about a boy named Dyson who loves to wear a pink dress. And here's a page, and I'll let you read it. I'm not going to read it, but here's a page from the book. In my heart, I just want to say, my heart goes out to anyone who struggles with gender identity. It really does, especially young children. And I've known of young children who struggle with this. And I just want to say to you, my heart goes out to you. And if you're a parent, to, your, to you and your children. And I just want you to know, man, we love you. And you're welcome here. And we want so much for you to know about the love of Jesus Christ. When I heard this, it just begs the question, should schools be introducing this kind of material to our five-year-olds? And shouldn't it be the responsibility of parents instead to educate their children in these matters? Another book the State Board of Education recommends for high schoolers is this one here. It's called SEX, the All You Need to Know Sexuality Guide. I don't have the book. I would never buy the book. But I went to Amazon and I read the table of contents and I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe that they would recommend putting this book in the hands of 14 and 15 and 16-year-olds. I can't even read the table of contents to you and describe to you what's in it because it's so graphic, it's so shocking, and this is church. I can't do it. 
And it's no wonder that with each passing generation, fewer and fewer and fewer, even of our kids, have a biblical worldview. And so in the introduction to this book, David Kinnaman, who is the president of, Bar of the Barna Group, he wrote this, and I'm going to put it up up here, put it up here for you, what he wrote. He wrote, we live in a complex, accelerated culture. For a few years now, the Barnett team and I have been calling our surrounding culture Digital Babylon. Isn't that interesting? We're calling it Digital Babylon to highlight both the outsized impact of always connected Judean exiles in Babylon in the 6th century and people of faith today. Not too long ago, he wrote, North America felt to many Christians like Jerusalem to the ancient Judeans, culturally homogenous, religiously comfortable. But as cultural change has accelerated over the past three decades, many have begun to feel like exiles from their home country. And he's right. Beginning to feel like an exile. It's not beginning to feel like home anymore. It's fast become a foreign land to us. This is our new Babylon. And that's why I chose Psalm 137.4 is my verse. If there was ever a question that was tailor-made for our times, if there, was a if there was ever a question that begs to be answered, it is Psalm 137, verse 4. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How shall we do it? And to answer the question, because I want to answer the question, I want to share with you a few thoughts that come from the book of Daniel. And, and why Daniel? So turn to Daniel. First of all, turn to Daniel. You can find Daniel in the Old Testament. If you're still in Psalm 137, turn to the right. You go past Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, or Jeremiah, Isaiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, then Ezekiel, and then you'll come to Daniel, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. But I chose Daniel because he was one of the Jews living in Jerusalem when the Babylonians swept him, they got him, and they deported him to Babylon. So he was one of the Jews who was living in Babylon in exile, and so he knew what it was like to be there. And I want to tell you what he did and, and, and what he said. Let me start in Daniel chapter 2, all right? Take a look at Daniel chapter 2. Daniel, in Daniel 2, he prays this incredible prayer that gives us insight into how we ought to live our lives in Babylon. Here's what he said, starting in verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is, he knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. Let me stop right there. And, and the prayer goes on. But I, I want to stop you. This is an amazing prayer. It's an amazing prayer. Now, According to Bible scholars, Daniel, when, when he was deported, when he, was, when he probably wrote this, he was, he was still a young man. He's probably a teenager, probably 14, 15 years old. That's what they're saying, 14, 15 years old. But he had, the, when you read this, he had the maturity and the insight of someone who'd been walking with God for 70 years. It was absolutely apparent that he had a biblical worldview I mean, just the prayer, just verse 20. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. Well, that, that's incredible for a 14 or 15-year-old to say. And then, and then verse 21. Take a look at verse 21 again. He said, he prayed, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. You should underline this. 
He changes times and seasons and removes kings and sets up kings. You know, you know what David was saying here? God is in control. God is in control. God changes times and seasons. He's the one that removes kings and sets kings up in place. God is sovereign. You see, when he prayed this prayer, the Babylonian invasion was still fresh on his mind. It was as if it just happened yesterday. And he could still probably picture it when the Babylonians swept into Jerusalem and God removed one king, the Judean king, and removed one king and set up another. And it's actually spelled out for in chapter 1, the second verse, Daniel 1, 2. Just take a look at this. It says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. God removed one king, Jehoiakim, and he set up another. And that other was Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel saw God's sovereignty in action with his very own eyes. And by the way, Jehoiakim wasn't Korean, all right? He was a Jew. I know some of you Koreans, I know you Koreans say, oh man, we got a Korean in the Bible. No, Jehoiakim was a Jew. <laughs> Thought I'd have a little fun with that, right? It was, but it was God who orchestrated the events, right? It was God who allowed this to happen. God was in charge. God knew what he was doing. You know, when I, when I read this prayer, I couldn't help but notice what he didn't say. I couldn't help but notice what he didn't pray. Daniel didn't pray, OMG, what in the world is happening? God, why are you doing this? Why did you let the temple be destroyed? That's your house. Why did you let them take us hostage? We are doomed. We are finished. Daniel didn't freak out. He didn't wring his hands in despair. He didn't go into meltdown mode. Instead, Daniel maintained the right perspective. Hey, God is in control. God knows what he's doing. What a great lesson for us. And, and we need to have that perspective. We need to have the right perspective. We need to always remember that God is in control. And that's true for us with, with regards to who's in charge of our government. It's true even in, in, with regards to the state of our culture, even if it's in decline. It's true in our own personal lives. God is sovereign over your finances. God is in control of your job situation. God is in control of your schooling. God is in control. Maybe you just diagnosed with cancer. God is in control of your health and of your life. He is in control of your family and your relationships. He is in control of where you live. He is even in control when tragedy strikes. God is in control. I mean, there isn't a single thing in the universe that God isn't sovereign over. And I think he said this just to, to remind himself and others, bring comfort to them. Hey, guys, don't, don't panic. Don't freak out. God's in control. Psalm 103, verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over what? All right? His sovereignty rules overall. God is in control of everything. And so we've got to do what Daniel did. And we just got to maintain the right perspective. You can write that one down. We just got to maintain the right perspective. You know, after Daniel arrived in Babylon, he and some of his friends caught the attention of Nebuchadnezzar's chief eunuch. Now, I'm not going to go into, well, what a eunuch was, but you probably know. But basically, the chief eunuch was, was the king's servant. He was the chief servant of the king. And the, and the eunuch 
notice these four guys, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he brought them into the king's palace that they might be taught the Babylonian way. In other words, he brought them there to indoctrinate them with Babylonian culture. Daniel 1, take a look at Daniel 1, verse 5. And it says, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So first of all, Daniel was brought and his friends were brought to the king's palace to be indoctrinated with, with Babylonian culture. And then the king, because he didn't want them to starve to death because they were hungry, the king gave them his food to eat and drink. Now jump down to verse 8 in Daniel 1. Take a, look with, take a look at Daniel's reaction. This is so good. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Will you underline he would not defile himself? He would not. He said, he politely said, no, thank you, but I'm not going to eat this food. I'm not going to eat this food. See, here was the problem with the food. Here was the problem with the king's food. First, it didn't conform to the requirements of Mosaic law. I mean, Daniel was a devout Hebrew. And it didn't, the food didn't conform to Mosaic law because the fact that it was prepared by Gentiles, Gentile hands made the food, food unclean. Second, because the food, the king's food was always custom, had him sacrifice all the food, was always presented and offered to pagan gods before the king ate it. And because the food was sacrificed to idols um, before it was given to them, if Daniel ate it, it was tantamount to him participating in, in the things that they did there, and it would have been tainted. And so Daniel said no to the food and the drink. And it says here, I love this, he says here, he resolved that he would not defile himself. In other words, he said no because he decided long ago that he was never going to compromise his faith. He was never going to, it was never going to compromise. He was never going to water down his values. So in, the, in this foreign land, Daniel stood his ground. He said, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do that. What a great teaching lesson for us. We, we've got to do the same in, in our culture. We've got to stand our ground. We've got to resolve that we're not going to be defiled by our culture and by this sin, so write that one down. You know, with, frequent, free, uh, with increasing frequency, we face in our Babylon the temptation to compromise our faith and to surrender our values and just go along with the crowd. That's what we're, we, we face every single day. Just recently, one of the men in our church, a family man, has become a really good friend. He's got a beautiful wife and two children. He told me that he was invited to a bachelor party in Las Vegas for one of his last remaining single friends. And when he said, We're having, they're having a bachelor party in Las Vegas, he said to his wife, I don't want to go. I know what they're going to do there. I don't want to go. But his friend pleaded with him, please come, you know. I mean, I, I want you to be there. And so he reluctantly went. And he says he didn't know all the guys who were there, but he says he, says, he found out that just all of them Family men, married with children, some of them very successful, some of them very wealthy. And he says they all got to Vegas. And he said they went wild. They just went wild. And he said, you know, what, what happens to Vegas stays in Vegas. These guys just went wild. 
And he says, as soon as he recognized that things were about to get even worse, they were, go, they were about to go from bad to worse, he said, he left. He said, that's it, I'm out of here. He just stood his ground. He politely, he didn't, he didn't condemn anybody. He didn't say, you're all a bunch of, you know, and no, he just politely said, I have to leave. I can't be here anymore. And he left. You know, 2 Timothy 2.22 says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Flee, flee, the st- flee sin. Flee the stuff that you know is, is going to defile you and defile your soul. Instead of run to sin, run from it. Instead of run to it, run from it. Take a stand. I mean, let me ask you, what do you do? What do you do when you're presented with sin and presented with temptation? When you're, pre- when you're presented with temptation, do you go wild like, yeah, baby? Or do you cuss like everyone else? Do you get drunk like everyone else? Do you smoke pot? Hey, it's legal now. You can smoke pot. Do you vape like everyone else? Or do you just say, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to stand my ground. And even if you have to, you run. Because you resolved, you resolved that you will not defile yourself with sin. What will you do in this foreign land that we're living in? Well, when we come to Daniel chapter 6, turn to Daniel chapter 6, flip, flip over there. We read that some of the high government officials conspired to take down Daniel. You know, see, when, and, and that's true, right? I mean, whenever you, whenever you take a stand for God, there will always be those that want to bring you down. There will always be those that oppose you. And that's the work of the devil. Guaranteed. They'll go after you. The devil will go after you. And so these government officials there in Babylon has to plan, we're going to get Daniel, right? We're going to get Daniel. So they have to plan to execute anyone who prayed to anyone other than the king. See, that'd be a real easy way to get the king to sign on to this. Because the king had a big ego. Oh, your majesty. If no one, if they don't pray to you, if someone else prays to anyone other than you, then we're going to throw them in the lion's den. That was their form of execution. Throw them in the lion's pit and they'll be torn to shreds. That was their form of execution. So basically this was a declaration of war. A declaration of war against Daniel. We're going to get Daniel. We're going to take him down. And you know what Daniel did the moment he heard of their sinister plot? He didn't circulate a petition appealing the king's decree. He didn't initiate a recall effort to replace the king's men. He didn't set up a voter registration table. Let's get all the, well, there goes my message. Let's get all the Republicans and Democrats to sign up so we can get rid of these guys. He didn't organize a, a protest rally. You know what he did instead? Take a look at Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. I'm getting all excited here, throwing all my notes around. Verse 10 says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed by the king, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Isn't that great? Daniel prayed. He fought back by hitting his knees. And when he got in the room to pray, he made sure the windows were open so everyone could see and hear exactly what he was doing. And he did it three times a day to make sure they got it. I love that. 
He didn't fight back politically. He fought back by hitting his knees. Church, I don't know if you know this or not. I don't know if you realize this or not. I've said it before. But we are in a foreign land. You know, the Bible says that we are aliens and strangers. And we are at war. You know that? We are at war. And the devil hates you. He hates every single one of you. And he will do anything he can to take you down. He will do whatever it takes to take you down. He'll do whatever it takes to get you to compromise your faith. He will do, do anything it takes to get you to surrender your values, to undermine your testimony, to undermine your witness, to get you to abandon a biblical worldview to keep you out of heaven. And he, and he, he is going after parents and single people and couples and teenagers, and now what has become so apparent to me is that he is taking the fight directly to our kids. You know, I almost want to say to him, you're a big coward. Leave the kids alone, right? But he's taking the fight directly to our kids. Satan is going after your kids, starting with the unborn. And if they're fortunate to be born... His method of operation is to brainwash them and start early so that they never have a biblical worldview so that it can keep them out of heaven. And I don't know if you know this, sociologists say that your worldview begins to take shape when you're two, and by the time you're a teenager, it's completely formed. I mean, that's true. Ask a teenager how they see the world. They have a real clear idea of how they see the world. And so the attacks start early. And that's what's going on today. The devil is taking the fight to our kids. And mark my words, the devil will not stop. He will not stop until the number of people who have a biblical worldview is zero. He won't stop until it's zero, until no one has a biblical worldview. And then he will have won. And tragically, we're almost there. We're at 4% with Gen Zers. We're almost there. And that's assuming that those 4% hold on. And you know what I say, church? We can't surrender our children. We can't surrender the next generation. We have got to fight. And I don't mean politically. I mean we've got to fight spiritually. We've got to fight for our kids. And that's your final point. I must fight the good fight of faith. That's what Paul said we need to do in 1 Timothy 6, 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. And if you want to fight the good fight of the faith, if you say, man, I'm here, I'm going to fight, it begins with you, right? It begins with us. It begins when we decide that we're going to take our faith seriously, that we're going to take God seriously, that we're going to take our relationship with Jesus seriously. No more sitting on the fence, right? Get off the fence, it also begins when we resolve to take a stand against sin. That's it. We're not going to let alcohol defile us. We're not going to let pot defile us. We're not going to let sexual immorality defile us. Lying and cheating and stealing and all those other things, we're not going to let it defile us. We're going to take a stand. Then and only then can we begin to fight for the next generation. You know, I know from personal experience how difficult parenting is. I mean, it, and it is, it is getting more difficult and more complex by the day. 
So if you're a parent, maybe you want to be a parent one day. We want to help you. Recently, I came across a, a, an eight-week uh, small group series called The Art of Parenting. It was put together by an organization called Family Life. Great organization, Dennis Rainey. And we've been looking at this, and we've been going through it ourselves. And we thought, man, this is a great study. A great study for parents to help them raise their kids, kids of all ages, not just little ones, right, but even teenagers, right? And we thought, this is a great tool. So we decided we're going to offer this here at our church starting in September. Now, we would prefer to do it sooner than that because time is of the essence, but we know that we're coming upon summer vacation and, and you know, you're going to be going on summer vacation and, and, and all that kind of stuff, and so you're going to miss a lot of it, and so we don't want anyone to miss any part of it, so we're going to launch it in the fall, and my hope is that every single parent, single parents, it doesn't matter, every parent, regardless of the age of your child, we want everyone to participate in this series. And we think it will help you and equip you to, to raise your children. And maybe, maybe you're a grandparent. Jump in. We want you to be part of this group. And I think it's so important that we're going to open it up to anybody. It's not like, oh, I'm sorry, you're not a parent. You can't be part of this group. No, if you want to be part of this group, you want to be part of a group that goes through this, then just let us know. But, but we think it's so important that if you're... If you're a young person, you're not even, or you're, you're a single person, you're not even married yet, but you hope to be married one day and you want to have kids, hey, jump in a group so you can learn right now how it is that you can raise kids when you have them. Or maybe you're engaged to be married. Or you're just dating somebody. You hope that one day you're going to get married and have kids. Jump into a group. We're, I'm hoping that hundreds and hundreds of people will sign up to be part of a group. And we're, so we're going to be looking to set up groups in the next couple of months. And we're going to, we want we want dozens and dozens of brand new groups to take you through this material. And we're also going to be showing a movie in connection with this. And I saw it the other day, and it was powerful. And we're going to be showing this movie. We want, we want everyone of, every one of you to see it. We're going to be offer, start offering it in June, and we're going to be offering it several times, different times, different days, so that we give everybody an opportunity to see it. We're going to try to provide child care for some of the showings. Uh, if you can't do that, then maybe... Dad can come one night and mom can come another night. That's why we're going to offer it as often as we can here. And we think it's going to be a, a great catalyst to challenge you to get into a group because, man, things are getting worse by the day. And not only that, we, we've decided that um, here in, in starting in July, I've uh, been talking to Pastor James and Pastor Dave uh, about this. We're going to put together uh, like a four or five-week series. We haven't decided what night we're going to offer it, what day we're going to offer it. We're putting this together for anyone high school and above. And we want to teach our young people, and this is for young adults and for single people. I mean, if you're 30 years old and you want to be part of this, great. Uh, and we're going to call it Waiting, Dating, and Mating. And uh, we want to talk about singleness and sex and how to be a man and how to be a woman and all that. And when Pastor Caleb heard that, he says, I want my son Jonah to be in that too. I want him to go to that too. Jonah's 13, right? So if you've got a 13-year-old and you want, to be, you want him to be a part of this or her to part of this, I'm okay with that. It's supposed to be high school and above, right? Just need to know. just want you to know it might be PG-13 stuff, right? And so, so that's coming up. And then we got, we got stuff for we're going to be offering premarital counseling starting in September, group premarital counseling, and that's, and that's going to be good as well. And so we're making every effort 
to help the families because we can't lose the next generation. It's church. The world's getting darker and darker by the minute. It really is. And with each passing generation, there are fewer and fewer Christ followers. But there's hope. There is hope. There's hope if you will maintain your perspective, the right perspective, that no matter what happens, God is always in control. There is hope if you will stand your ground and you will hold firm to what you believe and not give in. There is hope if you will fight the good fight, starting with you, and you resolve that you're going to get serious about your relationship with Christ. And if you will do these things, you can be like this light. You can be like this light. Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that everyone will glorify our Father in heaven. You can be a light in Babylon like Daniel was. And have you ever noticed that the darker things get, the brighter the light shines? The world is getting darker and darker and darker by the minute. And that's when our light shines the brightest. And so don't leave here today in despair. Be the light. Be the light of the world. And there will be hope. Church, who will sing the Lord's song in this foreign land? I hope it will be you. Let's close our time in prayer. As you bow your heads and close your eyes, I think a good place to start would be just to ask the Lord for forgiveness. Because I don't know about you. In fact, I'm pretty sure you're just like me. There have been times when I've gotten sucked into the culture, when I've just gone along with the crowd. And maybe that's you. And if you're one that's not taken a stand, if you're one that's allowed sin to defile your soul, why don't you start right now by praying and asking God to forgive you. God, forgive us. God, we come before you and we plead and ask you for your mercy. Forgive us, God. For so often not, for, for so often conforming to the world instead of being transformed by you. Forgive us for going along, for not taking a stand. Forgive us, Father, for all the times that we've offended you. Father, forgive us for the poor examples that we have been to our children. Father, forgive us for the way that we've led our own lives and the way we speak in front of them and the, way, the things that we do in front of them that would lead them astray. Forgive us, God. We thank you so much for Jesus. Without him, forgiveness would not be possible. We thank you, God, for touching our hearts with your mercy and your love. Father, now help us. God, we plead and ask you and beg you, God, help us to be the people that you want us to be in this foreign land. 
God, help us to begin by taking you seriously, following you, Jesus, with all of our hearts. And yes, we'll, we'll sin. Yes, we'll continue to fall. But God, help us to do everything we can to make you number one in our lives, to put you first in our lives. Help us, God, as we, when we confront temptation and sin, to resolve before those temptations come that we will not allow sin to defile us. Give us the resolve now, Father, today, that we will take a stand, that parents will take a stand, that every teenager in this room will take a stand, that every single person in this room will take a stand against sin and we will do what is right. We will follow you no matter what the cost. And Father, help us to fight the good fight. Help us to take the fight to the enemy, not by organizing political rallies, God. And there's certainly nothing wrong with Christians being involved in the political scene. But Father, our fight is a fight with the unseen. And, and our we the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses like your word and like prayer. So help us to take the fight there and use the weapons of warfare that you've given to us in Ephesians 6. And Father, help us to fight for the next generation. Help us to fight for our children. Father, for those of us who are parents, help us whether we've got teenagers or whether we've got little ones who are just coming in the world. Father, even if we don't have children, help us to fight for our young people. Help us to be prayerful and, and committed to our young people to disciple them. Our college students need disciplers. Our youth ministries need more workers and helpers. Our kids' crew ministries always need more, more helpers, God. Stir in us that we would commit ourselves in a greater way. And I pray that, that in the coming months, in the coming years, you would multiply and increase our youth ministries and our children's ministry, that we'd save this generation. And Father, help us never to give up because so much is at stake. So Father, I pray you'd pierce our hearts pierce our hearts with your word and with your truth that we would be a mighty generation that proclaims the name of Jesus thank you Father this is our prayer in Jesus name Amen